Hello and welcome to another episode of Worked Up, the podcast where you learn to navigate the workplace, business, and your career with a little more ease and a lot less angst. I'm your host, Jacqueline Beck, and we have a special guest in the studio today. He is no stranger to a microphone, and in particular, this studio. It is the founder of this studio, Brian Howie. Welcome. Well, hi, thanks for having me. Welcome to your home. Yeah, I've been peering through the glass for months trying to get a spot in this seat, and here I am. For anyone who's wondered where we record this podcast, there's a great studio by me called Pod Populi. Um, it has all the infrastructure, does all the backend technology, makes my life easy. Brian runs the show here, um, and it's basically a fishbowl. So we're sitting in a room. We're very public facing. Surrounded by the outside. There is no I in podcast. That's right. The people have to watch you do this. <laughs> what happened to having a face for radio? That's what we, I was hoping for. I know. We, we get that too. Like, get out there. I mean, it's, you know, we are in a look at me world, even if they're just listening to you. You got to got to be noticed. You got to stand out. I thought the benefit of having a podcast was I could show up with, you know, my hair not done, no makeup. Yeah, that's thing. funny you say that. I um, started, the first studio I had was in Santa Monica, California, and then I had one in Beverly Hills. And you'd be surprised at how many women do not want any part of video, pictures, anything. They will call ahead of time. And like, if there's a camera there, I'm not coming in. I understand. They're like, that's a whole different day for me. And so they don't <laughs> want it. So yeah, audio only. I get it. But by way of background... Brian, like I said, is the founder of Pod Populi, the studio we are recording live from. He is an entrepreneur. Yes. Lifelong. He is also the host of the number one dating and relationship podcast, The Great Love Debate. I am. Check it out. Check it out. It doesn't mean that I have all the answers. It just means I'm very good at raising the questions. And so I, we have done that show. That started as a tour, which it still is as a show here tonight as we speak in this town. Um all over the world, me just being curious and wanting to figure out sort of the disconnect between people, but more specifically men and women. And um, I wrote a book. It was sort of semi, semi-satirical look at dating called How to Find Love in 60 Seconds. Um, I spent most of my showbiz career um, as a writer, director, producer. That forced me to be the talent once I wrote the book. I became a host of the live show, it turned into the podcast. And so I see both sides of it now. And being the talent isn't always the easy part. I think I still prefer producing versus hosting. What about it? I think producing you, when you're the host or you're the actor or you're the actress, about 80% of it has always been done to that point. A lot of the work has always been done. Again, a great actor can take written word and take it to another level, all that. But from set design to direction to lighting, there's so much of the entertainment world sausage that gets made by not the front facing people. Mm -hmm. I think I liked that because um, I like the control of it. I started off when I got out of college. Can I ramble on about my background to give you some context? Please do. When I was in college and when I, so my dad was a lifelong IBMer. And IBM is about as corporate as corporate can be. Mm -hmm. And he was an IBM exec at the height of when that was one of the biggest companies in the world. And I knew I didn't want that. I knew he didn't come home from work and he, he, there wasn't a lot of laughing in my house. Like I'm, I'm like, I don't want that. So I always try to figure out, well, what is a world where 
I could be creative and have fun and hopefully make money and do, and do all that much to their chagrin. Um, I thought when I got out of college, I would write the great American novel. I realized very quickly I did not have the talent for it. So I started writing screenplays. No offense to screenwriters out there, but it is shorthand. It is cheating. Instead of describing the sunset, you just write day, exterior. <laughs> and you could write dialogue. Instead of writing 400 pages, you're writing 120 pages. It's and, efficient. And it's very efficient. So I was fortunate to sell a couple of screenplays pretty early on. And then the screenplays, People be like, when's your movie coming out? There was like 5,000 steps between selling and optioning the screenplay and it turning into a big screen. Right. I didn't like that. So I started to produce television um, for Viacom at MTV and VH1 because I knew like here. So, but the problem with that is I didn't start as production assistant and work my way up. I started at producer, which you might think is great, but it was humiliating and terrifying because I would be in charge of a show and the lighting guy would come in and be like, okay, what kind of lights are we going to have on the show? And I'm like, good lights, lights where you can see things. <laughs> and then the sound guy would come in. He's like, oh, what kind of sound? I'm like, crisp sound. I didn't have the terminology. I didn't have the background. It was total imposter system, the whole imposter syndrome the whole time. So I would take like VHS tapes and I would bring them in. I'm like, I want it to look like that. I want it to sound like that. And people respected the vision. And, and, and I lost, then the fear of, I don't know what I'm talking about. They're like, oh, he does know. He just doesn't know how to say it. Mm. It was almost like a language barrier. People were totally fine with that. And so when I, I sort of got to the point where it's like, if you have a vision and you try and keep moving it forward however you can, that's the way to do it. And then I got into directing because producing television is way too collaborative for a control freak like me. <laughs> 16 people sit around a big conference table and throw out bad ideas. And it's like a game of whack-a-mole and it ruins whatever project you have. Cause some idea is going to get through. It's a big sieve. So I started to direct theater and commercials and stuff like that, because I'm like, I can control this. And so all of it was sort of diving in this creative pool and figuring out what my skill set could be um, to make that work. That being said, not having a traditional job, for lack of a better term, not having working in a corporate structure, not working in a company, really, really, I wish I was like one of those countries that sent everybody to the military for two years. Like I should have been required to go sell insurance and because you learn, you learn interpersonal skills and you learn just how to get along with people and how to project or whatever. So everybody's like, Oh, that's such a cool way to do things. Not really. <laughs> so, um, I did things a little bit backwards and here I am. And here you are. Yeah. There's so much that stands out to me from your path and your story, not least of which is the fact that you know yourself fairly well. And I happen to know this cause you and I have debated different things at different times. You've caught me at a point where I think I know okay. myself well. Okay. Um, if you met me 15 years ago, probably because I was working in Hollywood, all of my energy would have been devoted to not letting you see what I didn't know. I, you would be leading with what you did know. You would never show your weakness, your vulnerability, all that kind of stuff. Like I, I you know, if I just met you, it would all be about like, here's what I have done and can do. What's that about? Um, that is about the fear of almost everybody in show business. And I don't think anybody in show business would mind if I said this in the entertainment business 
is afraid that they are a fraud because it seems like a cheating way to make a living. It seems like you're playing, you know, there's real money and there's real business involved, but at the end of the day, like you're putting on a play, you're putting on a show. And so I think a lot of people have some guilt in that. And so they're trying to put out front that the, the hard work and the effort and all the things that go into it, um, while not really confronting that this is serious stuff and this is work, because if you do that, then you have to look at the possibility of risk and failure and just not doing the right thing. And uh, I don't think people treat each other in, in a, in a business world like that. Like it's not a, it is not a good group of people to be around. And again, I don't think anybody in that business would, would think that it is, it's very catty. It's, it's the old line. It's high school with money. And, um, the entertainment business is rough. You all, you are constantly hearing the stat. If you're an actor or an actress, especially, or a musician, you go to Hollywood and you hear it's a thousand to one to make it. Yeah. And that, that stat never goes away. 3000 people come to Los Angeles every day. 3000 people live, leave. And so many people there are doing everything they can because everybody in their life, including me said, Oh my God, you're, that's why, what are you doing? You can't do that. And my dad said to me, he's like, what's going to happen when you, when you run out of ideas? And I said, there's no limits on imagination. You should never run out of ideas. He didn't want to hear that. Mm. It was like, why are you taking this risky path? It's a waste of your smarts. It's a waste of your talent. Why are you doing that? And everybody out there has heard this. You're going to the show business. It's a million to one to make it. It's a thousand to one to make it. It's 10th. You hear this all the time. So people are have an extra guard up because they're afraid that if they let that down for a second, the odds will go Against in the wrong them. direction. Yeah. Well, what I just heard you say is this perception of frivolity, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, look at me. I get to have fun every day at work. And this almost fear of that going away. Right. Right. And then the imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. which you mentioned. Yeah. And then what's also interesting about that is the tension between differing levels of risk aversion. For sure. Here you had Mr. IBM, your dad, right? Who I'm assuming based on the way you've talked about him in the past, held a very rigid and structured view of work right. and life. Right. And here you had, you were the creative wanting to forge your own path. My parents, to this day, my dad just passed away a couple of weeks ago. So I say, I say that in the present tense, which is weird. He did. I'm sorry. But my parents, that's a different podcast. <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> it's my therapist podcast. <laughs> to this day, they draw a straight line between me making the choice to go into the entertainment business and them not getting any grandchildren out of me. <laughs> because he let, he took a non-serious life. Okay. He must be just swimming in a pool at the Playboy Mansion and not doing serious person things, having the family settling down. It's just a, a goof. I mean, and you hear that all the time. That made me work harder. Yeah. That made me be like, you know, and so I would have television shows and I'd have my name like produced by Brian Howie, be in the credits. And I know there was a part of them that was proud, but they couldn't admit it because then they would admit they were wrong and they were not encouraging. And I, you know, a lot of people are have parents or a familial situation that it's like, go chase your dream. And they're very supportive. No, I was not in that situation. So I was constantly fighting for that. Another part of the input. So I, I, the most valuable lesson I learned pretty early on was sitting around one of these tables with all these people was that nobody was really more than maybe one chapter in the book ahead of me. Mm. They didn't, nobody really knew nothing. 
<laughs> nobody really was that I'm like, you know what? I am more, in, I got to the point where like, I'm more intimidated by the electrician or the cable guy and they come and figure out a way to get something out of a wall than I am out of any like entertainment lawyer. Well, th- that's very interesting because I've had a few conversations in the past few weeks about executive presence, right? So the way someone comes off and I've had a few conversations where people say, oh, they work on wall street. They must really have it all together. Yeah. Or oh, this person's an attorney. They must really be an adult. Because they have a suit on. (laughs) And again, it goes back to the perception as reality. Yeah. Right? And to a certain extent, everybody is faking it till you make it. To a certain extent. Now, if you're a brain surgeon, if you're performing heart surgery. Yeah. You know. You better make it. You better make it. Right. But, But in the corporate world, there is an element of paying your dues getting your hands dirty, mm-hmm. understanding the work from the ground up, which speaks a lot to when you came into MTV Viacom as a producer off the bat without knowing the language. Right. Right. And you would, even if there weren't whispers, you would sense the whispers. Who is he? What is he doing? How the did judgment. he get that? Thank God I wasn't a woman. Cause she would be like, who did she sleep with? Like there is, Oh, I, I sense that from people too. Like the, how did he get here? How did he get here? Who does he know? Who does, who does his dad have a, like, there was a lot of that. And people always ask me like, well, what is the synergy? You, you know, you do this love dating and relationship podcast. And what does that have to do with entertainment? At the end of the day, dating is probably entertainment, but the lessons that I learned, the really good actors and actresses and directors and writers learn pretty early on that you can audition and be great. And you just weren't right for the part. It mm. wasn't have anything to do with your talent. It was just somebody didn't perceive that this part or this project was right for you. Didn't they? That's a good lesson to be for dating. You might be awesome. And if the other person, for whatever reason, either doesn't see that or it's not the right timing or whatever, that doesn't mean that you're failing at dating or relationships. It just means you weren't right for the part. And that lesson translates so easily to the business world as well. For whether sure. it's interviewing for a new job, whether it's trying to get a promotion, Sometimes it's right place, wrong time. Sometimes it's right time, wrong place. Sometimes it's a bad day for the person who didn't make the decision. And it's fit. And it's also knowing that the other side of the table works for you. Right. And I want to go back to something you said about this idea of seriousness. So I have a toddler. He's two. I don't know if you're familiar with this guy named Blippi. I am not. Okay. Blippi has created a toddler empire. Okay. He started as a YouTube star. Now he's on Netflix. He has cartoons. They have live shows. All my toddler wants to do is watch Blippi. I'm pretty sure he sold his empire for 200 million or something like this. Mm -hmm. And if you were to watch him on Blippi, the new baby shark, probably (laughs) on Netflix, baby shark comes on after Blippi actually, when you've run out of all the episodes. (laughs) Um, But he's sold this empire for a massive, massive windfall. And you look at what he's doing. He's dancing around. He's making funny noises. He's making silly faces. He's going to theme parks and water parks. You could very easily say that that's not serious. Right. But the business that he was running was a very real and a very serious thing. And to me, that comes back to an individual's values and how they define success. Yeah. I mean, people look at not, you know, I know. Um, Paris Hilton a bit 
and I knew her before she was big and, and same with Kim Kardashian. Like I knew them, they were kind of in the same way to name drop. Well, I'm just giving you an example. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. They, good luck trying to do what they do. Good luck. They're marketing geniuses. They are. They have kept their brands and faces and businesses, and they are literally running empires for 20 years, you know, them now. And people are like, oh, they do nothing. They have no talent or whatever. They have savvy. Oh yeah. And they have sense. And, um, do you start out with some advantage if you have some money? Yeah. But there's a lot of people out there. There's a lot of people all over the country that are trying to do the exact same thing they did and they do. Good luck. You know, you can't just be like, Oh, I'm going to make a tape and take my chances. A lot of people try and do the same things. And so I don't think they get nearly enough credit. Um, they're both of them really understand their brand. They mm-hmm. really understand their public persona. Paris will play up this, the dumb blonde thing all the way to the bank. Very smart. She's very smart. Yeah. And, and they do. And then, and the biggest part of smart is to put the right people around you, which mm-hmm. is I, something I'm not good at most of the time because I, you know, my control freakness and all that kind of stuff, like being able to, find the people who believe in you and allowing them to believe in you will let that flourish. And for trust reasons or vanity reasons or ego reasons, a lot of us fail to do that. They had to go down certain paths and be like, you know, okay, you're the one who can help me turn the perception of no talent into an empire. Awesome. So I think Kris Jenner is a marketing and branding genius. Yeah. And when you think of careers and businesses, you need a very clear, cogent, coherent brand. Mm -hmm. And so let me ask you, as you've pivoted through different seasons in your career, how have you kept that in mind, either in terms of the skills you were learning or in terms of keeping a a beacon in terms of who you wanted to be? I think that the, the best thing that you can do and what I learned too is to learn what I did not do well and admit mm. it. You know, you may ask, I am a terrible communicator, which is ridiculous because I make my living communicating. Mm-hmm. I can write things. I'm, the people who work here would vouch for that. I'm a terrible communicator. What do you mean by terrible communicator? I understand the message that I am trying to say in my head without any regard for the way they might hear it. Okay. Or interpret it. Okay. I don't understand why people don't perceive things the same way I do. Mm. I don't understand why they don't hear things the way I do. And I'm now aware of that. Mm -hmm. At least it's still a struggle for me every single day to articulate my message and my point in the tone that will be recepted well, received well, in the manner that's easily understood. I have a very... um, fast working sort of high Ram brain. And I'm constantly like throwing information at people. And then I'm very frustrated when they don't absorb it the Mm. way I do. Terrible. And that's a, that's a relationship thing too. You know, your wife, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, they don't necessarily want to be right. They do want to be heard. And there's something to be said for that in business. There's something to see like you're open to ideas, even though, you know, going back to those days when I said I had to quit working in television, it was too collaborative listening would have been great. The, the best person who ever worked with me, for me, she technically worked for me, 
she was so good at her job. She was, I guess she was my production associate. She was, you know, I was her boss. I so, I was so um, intimidated by the fact that the person who worked under me knew more than me and knew better than me that I, I would go out of my way to sort of silence her voice or to, to whatever. She's running a television network now. I've told her this. I go, I've, I've been, my whole career, I've been chasing you. Like I, I didn't, and she was thrilled to hear that. She's like, oh my God, you were the most frustrating person to deal with. I go, she was right about everything. She handled everything. And I was so like, again, back to, it's always imposter syndrome. I didn't allow her talents to get into my brain or to get into the production too much because I, ego problems. Yeah. And now I, the, I part of me is grateful that I understood the talent somebody else did. She, like I said, she's running a big television network now. Yeah. But I regret that ever since not being able, like how many other times did I not understand what she was saying, allow people to have the voice, try and take too much control, not communicate well, all of those kind of things that, you know, everything is confidence and communication, everything. You have to be confident, not just in what you know, but confident in what you don't know to the point where you can express that and show that. And you're so macho male leadership alpha all that stuff that makes the women roll their eyes like this is what we're talking about all the time that you don't let enough of the other um you don't let your guard down and you know let the, the voices in that once you learn to do that like everything changes like therapy affected my business life as much as my personal life oh yeah it did because it made me understand um, how I was perceived, you know, how I was perceived by others, but also like, oh, once you own your vulnerability and your weaknesses and you can try and work with that, or at least accept it, even if you're not going to prove it overnight, the ramifications of that it trickle into every aspect of your life. Well, first of all, the fact that you can sit here and admit that is huge, yeah. right? Because you also come from an industry that is not only known for ego, but known for sharp elbows, like mm -hmm. what you just said known for silencing voices because people think that it's a zero sum game. And if you win, I lose. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it seems like your journey has allowed you to not only recognize, but accept these things. Mm -hmm. And what you just said about you can't fix these problems overnight. Think about it. You spend 20, 30, 40 years being who you are, their habits. Right. And breaking those habits take a lot of awareness and time. And here's something I rarely tell anybody this, but I will share your audience because it, I, I don't know how many people do something like this. So I wear glasses all the time. You've probably never seen me without glasses. I haven't. They're reading glasses, essentially. They're progressive. Like I only really need them to read. My eyesight is fine other than like to see my phone. My eyesight started to fail on the reading side of it. At the same time, I started to go, go deeply into therapy. Mm. The glasses give me protection to the world because the therapy opened up something and I didn't feel that I was ready for people to look deeply into my soul, I guess it is. I understand. No, I understand the that. glasses to me are a bar barrier. As the vulnerability went up, I needed more protection. I know a very wise woman who tells me to pretend like I have a plexi shield glass around me. Yeah. And what I want to let in, it can permeate the glass. And what I want to not let in, it bounces off of it. It's like prison visitation here. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, but the glasses is a physical it is. manifestation. So the glasses make me feel 
safer. And people are like, like, that's insane. I don't think that's insane. Right. But then some people are like, I get it. I have, you know, it's a little bit like your blanket. I mean, yeah, security. but it really coincided at this time where I was going through therapy and I'm just like, I feel safer with my glasses on all the time. Well, so it's not a style thing. It's not a, you know, it's a little bit of a convenience because I have to look at my phone a lot, but I'm just like, I cannot face the world without another layer, which is, you know, well, oh, well, what we're talking about right now is being seen, heard and understood, right? Which I always like to say is the basis for all human relationships. It's what everybody fundamentally wants. It's manifested in different ways, but people want to be seen, heard and understood. Yeah. And it sounds like the lessons you've learned over your career are that allowing people around you to get that, mm -hmm. opening yourself up for that so that people can see your vulnerabilities so that people could see, you know, where, you know, the rough edges on the diamond are. Yeah. I think it's fine. I you. always had something to say. Mm-hmm. But I always had to filter it through another voice. I had to write a play. I had to write a screenplay. The things I wanted to say, I had to put through characters because then I'd be like, it's not me, it's them. Plausible deniability. Right. It's like, no, I, that's character talk. That's not me or whatever. And then a very, very smart producer, not that long ago, maybe like 10 years ago, she goes, you need to stop. You need to, are you ready to say, you need to own what you think. You need to own what you say. And you, you need to be quote unquote, the talent. It's time. Yeah. And it was time. I could not have done it years ago. I was at the right time in my life where I'm like, I don't need these artificial barriers to filter what my thoughts and, and feelings through that I can sort of be like, this is what I think with a little degree of snark, but, um, and, and deal with the repercussions of that. That was quite a journey to get to that. What was the inflection point for you? That made me think that. That made you feel comfortable with taking that leap. Two people who I really, really respected. Um, one was my manager and one was a big time producer. I trusted that they believed in me mm. in a way that others had not. And um, I have been through hundreds of people in, you know, Los Angeles is a very seductive muse. Everybody's telling you what you want to hear. Mm it got to the point where these are the first two people and they happen within like weeks of each other that I could for some, you know, it's a matter of either you're willing to hear it or they said it in the right way. I'm like, I trust that they understand me, my weakness, my talent, my ability, and I could trust them. Being seen, heard and understood. Right. So a, a lifetime of me resisting collaboration and not worrying when to work in a corporate structure. I'm like, I have to just do things myself or whatever. I allowed these two people to, take each arm and take me into this new world. And, um, you know, perhaps that was the place of my parents who were not that one was a man. So it was a man and a woman mm -hmm. and, um, projection. Yeah. And I'm like, this is the, the, this is what I needed in my life. And I was ready to sort of admit that and accept that. And so that was it. It was either I was ready or they said it in a way that I heard it. And um, that just changed everything. Well, I'd like to think it was probably a combination of the two. Yeah, right. probably. You had been on your own journey and these external parties belief in you allowed you to build the belief in yourself. 
Yeah. I mean, it takes a while for the boys to grow up in any circumstances, but I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. Remember? So a lot of it, it is all about you at the end of the day Yeah, and letting others into that world is not the easiest step. So they helped me. I put on my glasses and started to listen. It's like the reverse. And then Clark you Kent. go backwards and then you start thinking, um, Oh my God, how did I handle that situation? How did I handle the, the weird thing? I hate to admit this because of the name I'm going to bring up, but one of the people that I was in a room with that I'm like, oh, that's how you lead in a show was Harvey Weinstein. I was in a room with Harvey Weinstein working on some project. There were like 30 of us in the room and he couldn't get the answer he wanted. And he picked up a Diet Coke can and he fired it at the wall. Oh gosh. Everything changed. He got the change. He got the, I'm like, oh, that's what you do. Oh, that's how you handle it. That's how you command these people. Well, that's how he handled it. Right. But I saw the, I, I didn't, I like, oh, that changed everything. I'm like, oh, do I need to do that? I'm not sorry I did that. But a part of me was like, oh, the bully won. Yeah. And um, the loud one won. And that influenced you. Yeah. Not in a good way. Right. And I never forgot about that. I'm like, I've never seen a group of people react to that. I've never seen anybody do that, but then it worked. And I'm like, oh shit, do I throw a Coke can across the room? And for a long time, it stuck with me. Like, that's a bad thing to have Harvey Weinstein as your, <laughs> as your influence. Not in a good way. Not in a good way. No. Well, that's the, that's the tricky thing about role models is if you're going to model yourself after someone or take different people's styles in developing your own, you have to make sure that they're doing it in an effective way that also aligns with your values and the outcomes you want. Yeah, because I'd been around some people who just sweet Southern accent, said it the way it is, and 50 people listen to them. That seemed too far away from me. I'm like, yeah. I, I'm nowhere, I couldn't, eat, I can't do that. I can throw the Diet Coke can. I can't do that. But I probably could have done that. It just wasn't as immediate as me. And, and it was harder. Learn. Yeah, it was harder. So the, easy way, the, the easier way to get attention was to go louder mm. and not take the other path and not listen and not try and understand and not try and, you know, it was quick. You know, that's a New York thing too. You know, there, there are, the way people behave in New York is different from the way people behave in Los Angeles. And I'm not sure the Los Angeles way is seems more dishonest, honestly, more <laughs> sweet talking and come to my party in the hills and all that. You know what you get. In New York, and the pace is different. In, in, in Los Angeles, or at least in show business, you would have a lunch to schedule a lunch. Right. It drove me nuts. It would take forever to get anything done. Well, that goes done. back to efficiency. So clearly you value yes. efficiency. I do. I'm like, why can't we do this at this pace tomorrow? Like, why can't we just do this right now? Right. And it's very frustrating for people to keep up with me when I want to just like, let's do this right now. Yeah. And you have to learn that, first of all, people have lives outside of work. People's attention spans are not nearly them. Again, no kids, no dog, no wife. My priority is right now, let's do this. And people have a lot of other things going on. They shouldn't take prior, necessarily priority in the moment if you're at a workplace, but the brain space Mm -hmm. it's hard to compartmentalize. It's hard to multitask. So you might find this interesting. We had an expert on a bit ago uh, about communication. 7% of communication is words. 37 to 38% is tone. And the balance, about 55% body language. Huh. Is throwing the Coke can body language? I would say that's, that's probably... Tone body language. And I would assume that after the Coke can throw, mm -hmm. there was a very firm tone. 
Probably. Yes. But when you're trying to get information, so here's a formula that I can, this is actually a piece of, your, your listeners have been listening a long time and you didn't get anything you can use. I'm going to give you something you can use. So a formula that I came up with when I'm um, teaching something or writing something or presenting something, it's what I call the ratio of seven. And that means that in any talk, presentation, written document, or whatever, you're essentially giving people seven pieces of information. Mm-hmm. And that could be 14, that could be 21 or whatever. And the ratio has to be four things that they already know mm-hmm. and three things that they don't know. If you give them seven things that they already know, they're like, why are you listening to me? And if you give them seven things they don't know, they feel too far away from it. Mm. If it's slightly to the side, four to three of, oh, oh yeah, I get it. You feel like the audience gets you and the thing you want, but they're engaged with you enough to learn the other things you don't know. And so everything should sort of be in that sort of ratio, slightly to the side of not necessarily the obvious, but yeah. And they're like, oh, this is what I think and talk about. And then you hit them up with the things you don't know. You're going to get a lot more absorption and engagement of that. Well, that's interesting because that theme of achievability or perceived achievability is permeating your own story too, right? When you're saying that acting in a way where you're throwing the Diet Coke can across the room felt more achievable to you. So you grabbed at that. It was the path of least resistance. I can do that versus learn a whole different way of communicating. I can just throw a can and everything changes. Yeah. So, so let's (laughs) pivot for a second because I want to talk to you about entrepreneurship. Yeah. And you've mentioned the word control freak several times today. How has that influenced your journey of entrepreneurship? Well, you have, the thing about entrepreneurship is you have got to be willing to take a risk. That really is what it is at the day. A lot of people think entrepreneurship is, oh, I'm going to do my own thing and follow my dream and make my own schedule, whatever it is. Every day is fraught with risk. Mm. Um, and you have to find people who believe in whatever your vision or passion project is as close to the degree that you do, that they can either see the path and they want to be a part of it or not. And that is the biggest challenge in anything as an entrepreneur, because they're, you, they have to be committed to it without necessarily taking the risk that you are. Right. And you make decisions based on risk. And when you put up your own money into stuff, you act differently. You might not even, that's why, you know, Steven Spielberg's not funding his own movies. <laughs> You know, the smart people are taking risks with other people's money, but having that skin in the game and doing that, it makes you work harder, makes you try harder, but it also makes you come to forks in the road and you have to make decisions that aren't necessarily the right one because it is your bottom line. You know, if you're an entrepreneur, you're a business owner, you're whatever, you haven't really, um, you don't really have a business unless you've had to figure out how to make payroll. Mm. You don't have a business, like you don't. Because that, these are the hurdles that everybody has to go through. Anybody can run a business when there's a million dollars in the bank. Anybody can do, anybody can do other. It's when I have to figure out how to get from here to here. I have to figure out what our receivables are, what our exposure is, what our risk is, what our employees is. You have to constantly be doing that on top of what you really set out to be an entrepreneur about was to be creative and chase a dream. Mm. And when you put all those other element, elements into it, then you're working at IBM but it's your own money and you're not getting the upside. And, and so that's the thing you have to do every day. Every day I'm like, Oh man, I should just go work in corporate America. I should have done that. People are like, you could not have done that. You wouldn't have done that. 
because you would have felt, and no offense to people who do this, this is a perfectly reasonable and better way to do it than just being a lifelong entrepreneur. But there are no days off. Yeah. The phone rarely goes off. The brain rarely goes off. Mm. And you're constantly thinking about the way you need to do things, want to do things, can do things, and hoping you find enough people who want to come along for the ride. That's hard to do. Relationships, hard to find one person when you are trying to start a business. You find a lot of people. A lot of relationships to manage. A lot of relationships to manage at once. And they all suffer because of that. So you're trying to balance a lot of things. Props to the women who are having babies and raising three kids and doing, doing all these things while trying to sell candles out of their basement and build a brand and everything. I mean, I can't even fathom the level of sleep deprivation that, 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 that involves. It's a lot of work, you know, but do you go into that world because you don't trust others? Like why, what, what is the reason, you know, the entrepreneur thing now everybody's an entrepreneur. Oh, well, the women, and they want to date an entrepreneur. Like, they want to date a you know, some people go be an entrepreneur because they're lazy, to be honest. Some people do it because they really believe it's the only way to get to the path where they want to do. And some people do it probably like me, that they don't trust that they could succeed in a traditional workplace, which is bad. I probably can. <laughs> Good. But it, it's a try. I was like put there because I'm like, I understand. This is what I thought about myself. Like I better just do my own thing because I'm not sure I could get along. I'm not sure I could climb the corporate ladder and play the game. So what you're talking to is a lack of self-belief. Probably. Right. Yeah. And then the other side of the coin is passion or a lack of, um, wanting to rely on a structure that's created by somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. That I might feel in prison. You know, somebody asked me the other day, this is how an answer changed for me. Um, if somebody gave you a $5 million, you won $5 million. So it's not an amount of money where you wouldn't have to work anymore. Mm -hmm. How would your life change personally what, and professionally? What would you say? What'd you say? I said, personally, I would probably eat more and better steak. <laughs> Professionally, I would hire better people. Not necessarily the people I have, but a level of, of affordability that I could afford. And that meant that I would take that money and say, I can't do the things that I think I can do. Um, if you asked me that 10, 15 years ago, I would have taken it. I would have never thought about bringing in others to do that. I've been like, Oh, that money will enable me to do the things I want to do the way that I want to do them. Now it's like, Oh, I could bring in four or five, 10 people who can do the things I can't do. Yeah. So my, my mindset went from what can't I do versus what can I do because of the money? So it's the shift from the singular to the whole. Yeah. And you bring up another excellent point, which is that, you know, you mentioned earlier that Hollywood is, I think you called it seductive right? Seductive muse. There you go. Seductive muse. Entrepreneurship can very much so be the same. For sure. And people are chasing the bright, shiny object mm -hmm. and it's not easy. I often hear the frustration from business owners. Why don't they care as much as I do? And I have to remind them that it's their money on the line, not the employees. Yeah. Right. And you also bring up the behind the scenes admin work 
that especially when you're starting out and especially when you're small, you're doing it all yourself. It's a friend of mine owns a, about 30, 40 bars, restaurants, nightclubs. And somebody said to him, a younger guy said, oh my God, I want to do what you do. Like you come in the morning and you eat an egg sandwich and you catch up on the news and then you go sort of plan the day and the events and meet the customers. He's like, is that what you think I do? He goes, I'm up all night thinking phone's going to ring. Somebody got in a fight or hurt in my restaurants. We're getting liquor license things. We're getting that. He's like, there are a thousand things that you have to do before you could even think about doing one fun thing. And everybody looks at like, oh, that's the great life. Oh, you know, Um, props to the flight attendants. They always find the good in that job. They always focus on, I love the travel. I get to travel. They don't, I'm like, that seems brutal to me. Like it's so hard work. You're going to send places, whatever. They always have the best attitude. They look at like, what do I get out of this job that is better for life? They're, they're, they're a happier bunch than most. Perception is reality. Attitude is everything. And I keep joking. You started off the podcast by saying this, and I swear every punchline of every podcast I've done recently is all roads lead back to being curious and continuous learning. Yeah. And I actually used to have a job where I was on, call it three to four flights a week. Sometimes I got the same flight attendants. That's when you know you're traveling. <laughs> oh, too yeah. Much. Not for me. Not for me. I'm looking at the clock, Brian. I can't believe how fast yeah. this has gone. I want to rapid fire two okay. questions to you. Yeah. The first, we've spent a lot of time talking about, you know, you called it weaknesses. Maybe I'll call it opportunities for growth put it in a more positive frame. My therapist is back in the room. (laughs) (laughs) But let's say someone is listening to this podcast and thinking, you know what? I, I get it. I have this thing that is troubling for me. How do you advise that they start improving and working on those things they want to work on? Instead of seeking answers, uh, try and figure out what are the questions asking questions and knowing what the questions are has so much more value than people think. They constantly go answers first, but your, your answers probably are not the right ones because the questions are not the right ones. And when you understand how to do, um, figure out what the questions are, that's when you get the answers. All roads lead back to curiosity. I, I, I agree with that. You know, I, I have this Time Magazine named me America's number one dating influencer. And people ask me that all the time. And I'm like, because I never stop asking questions. I'm trying to influence the dialogue. The answers may or may not come. I don't care about that. I care about, is this the question we should be asking? Well, and there's a beautiful parallel to your story and embracing your vulnerability Mm -hmm. and embracing the ability to be wrong with embracing the questions over the answers. Instead of being, this is the way I do things. It's why do I do things this way? You cannot be afraid to fail in any aspect of life. And if you have not failed, you're probably not going to get anywhere anyway. Like you have to really go into the abyss and really have a rock bottom before you can get anywhere. The old, you know, storm systems bring the bright sunny skies. Like you have to do that. And not, you don't have to be super um, either risk averse or a big risk taker, but you have to lead paths in life that will lead to some challenges and fight your way through them. Batman. The night is darkest before the dawn. There you go. All right. Next question. Yeah. Take this however you will. Uh Uh-oh. What do you know now that you wish you knew back then? Um, that 
admitting that you don't have all of the answers is the most important answer. It shows the greatest amount of wisdom. It shows the greatest amount of intellect. It shows the greatest amount of possibilities and there are possibilities everywhere, but you have to admit that these possibilities sometimes either may be on your grasp or beyond your capability in the moment. And you might have to ask who, what, when, where, how I like, you know, I always say when a tourist, when I'm, in, when I'm in you know New York and somebody comes up to me and they ask me like, Hey, how do you get to Port Authority or something? I love it because it means that they look at me as I must know something. I must be indigenous <laughs> to this town. I must be from here. I'm super flattered by that. I think a lot of people want to be asked questions. I think people don't mind. You know, you need to, to practice that. Go to Home Depot. Just start asking stuff. You get 100 people wanting to help you. Guys, go to Bed Bath & Beyond. Does this match? Getting comfortable asking questions without necessarily even caring about the, the answers, but just having that exercise, it really takes down a huge wall that a lot of us have. I'm afraid to show I don't know something. And I wish I knew that. Building the habit. Yeah. Ask questions. Ask questions. Be curious. Yeah. Be curious. Passion and curiosity drives everything. You have to figure out what you're passionate about. That can change over time, but really understand what you are passionate about. You ask a lot of people that they don't, they're trying to get through the day. Way to end on a very big esoteric question. Yeah. But that's exactly what we're trying to do here. Make you think. What are you passionate about? And I'm passionate about conversations and a question and an answer is a conversation. Yeah. So start there. Amazing. Well, Brian, I cannot believe how quickly our conversation has flown. Looking at the clock. I am very grateful for you spending time with us today in the studio. Thank you for being here. Thank you. You do a really good job. I I mean, I'm very proud of you. You've got a lot going on and the the conversations that you have on this platform and this podcast are inspiring. And when people ask me, who does a good podcast at the Pod Populi Studios? I give them your podcast. That means so much. It really does. You're going to make me cry. Okay. And now, now you have a really good one. And now, uh, (laughs) yes, I'm embracing my vulnerability. I'm about to cry on the air. Brian has inspired me, but that really, it truly means a lot. I've been having a lot of fun on this journey and thanks for making it possible. Um, And so I'm sure we'll find other opportunities for you to be on the podcast again, no doubt. And to all of our listeners, thank you as always for joining us on another episode of Worked Up. Look out for new episodes on Tuesdays. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and leave reviews. And please connect with us on Instagram at Jacqueline Beck Consulting on our website, www.jacquelinebeckconsulting.com or email us at info at JacquelineBeckConsulting.com. That's Jacqueline, Brian, spelled J-A-C-L-Y-N. He's the one that's made me spell it. <laughs> Remember, all roads lead back to curiosity and see you next time.